All right, so we're in Hebrews chapter 9 this evening. Hebrews 9, we're going to finish Hebrews 9. Looking at verses 11 through 28. Hebrews 9, 11 through 28. In a study I'm titling, A Blood Donor Saved My Life. And we'll see why as we work through this text. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the Great Commission. Lord, often we think of the United States, Lord, as being the center and sending people out, Lord, but in reality, Lord, we are at the ends of the earth, Lord. As the gospel began in Jerusalem, went into Judea and Samaria, and now it's to the ends of the earth. And um, Lord, you're, you're fulfilling your promise, Lord, just as you told your disciples. Lord, you want us to learn about you, teaching people all things, Lord, that you've taught us, and about who you are, Lord, and, and about... Lord, the, the work that you've done for us on the cross and to equip us, Lord, for the work of the ministry, to edify, Lord, the body of Christ, but also to go out and make disciples of others. And so, Lord, I pray as your word says, Lord, that you would commit these things to faithful men and women, Lord, and that you would use us, Lord, to go out and to teach, Lord, and to, and to minister. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the American Red Cross on their website has some 13 pages of testimonies of people whose lives have been saved by a blood donor. Now, when you look through these pages, each one of these stories, no doubt, is different. A lot of people had different diseases. They came from different situations. But yet, when it comes down to it, they all have one common salvation. A person made the sacrifice to go in and get pricked. And as a result of that, they received the blood and they were saved. Now, if we were to go around the room tonight and take everybody's testimony, no doubt we would find the same thing. We would see that a lot of us came from different walks of life, different backgrounds, different situations. But when it all comes down to it, we all have the common source of our salvation. Christ shed his blood for our sins, and we believe that. The source of our salvation is not in our works or in us, but it's all in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Beginning in chapter 9, verse 11 tonight, and really going on into chapter 10, verse 18, the writer is going to expand our understanding concerning Christ's great sacrifice on the cross. Now, since the context of the book of Hebrews is dealing with Jewish Christians who were thinking about going back to Judaism to alleviate their sufferings, they thought, hey, we can end it all now by just going back to Judaism and appeasing our friends and our relatives. The writer is going to take Judaism in the Old Testament sacrifices and contrast it with the, with the work of Christ and show us how much greater what Christ did for us, his sacrifice. And so this is in order to encourage us. Now, we'll learn a lot about doctrine, a lot about our um, salvation, a lot about Old Testament salvation. But the focus is not just doctrinal. We have to remember that the writer was writing a letter which is personal. And so often, you know, in, 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 the, in, in the epistles, we get caught up in doctrine, which is good, and we should, because their doctrine is given to us for correction, for proof, for instruction in righteousness. But we need to remember that there is always a context behind it. And God was desiring to do a good work through this letter. In the same way as we study it, God wants to do a good work in our life. We see that because chapter 10, verse 19, is going to begin another warning passage that calls Christians to press forward to maturity in light of what we learn in verse 11 through chapter 10, verse 18. 
So that's really the test. And so we have this assignment, we have what we need to learn, and then beginning in verse 19 of chapter 10, the writer says, okay, now press forward in what you've learned. It's supposed to affect us, it's supposed to change us, and it will as we sit with the Lord and allow him to minister to us. And so as we finish chapter nine tonight, we're gonna learn three amazing effects that Christ's sacrifice has. First, in verses 11 to 12, we learn that through his shed blood, we can have eternal redemption. Verse 11, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. So the writer in verses one through 10, as we saw last week, reviewed the earthly tabernacle. He went through and he explained the, the tabernacle and the furniture that was in both the holy place and the most holy place. Also, he talked about the priesthood and some of the different ordinances and some of the different sacrifices that they, they offer in the Old Testament. Now, the reason for reviewing these things is given to us in verse nine. He says, these things were symbolic. And as we saw, that word symbol there is where we get our word parable from. It was an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It was a message that was supposed to communicate to that Jewish audience. And that message is that there is gonna come one greater his name is Jesus. He is our great high priest. That parable, that picture all pointed to Jesus. Now the writer goes on to say is that Christ came as that promised high priest. And, and, and with this coming of Christ came the good things to come. That good things to come as we're gonna see is this new covenant that we've been talking a lot about. It's that promise that through the death of Jesus we have a unique relationship with God. I mean, just think about what we have in light of what the Old Testament believers have. They didn't have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit like we do today. Often people read that Psalm of David and where David says, Lord, take not your Holy Spirit away from me. And we think, oh no, is the Lord gonna take his spirit? Well, no, he's not because we have the impermanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit now. In the Old Testament, God put his spirit upon believers you know, in order for them to do a specific work. But today, the Spirit of God has come upon all flesh as we see on the day of Pentecost. And so we have that, that promise. We also have a unique relationship with now with God through grace alone. Not through the law, but through God's grace. So there's a lot of things. And, and with, Christ, with Christ's death, with his new priesthood, comes all of these good things to come. Some like to translate this as being here. And so you can, you know, you can take it both ways. Yes, it, there, there were things to come, but they're also here now as we uh, walk with Christ, as we put our faith in him. The writer goes on and says, the ministry of Jesus is greater than anything that they had in Judaism, and that's seen in the fact that Christ did not dwell in a tabernacle made with hands. He's dwelling in heaven. And that tabernacle on earth was only a copy, it was only a shadow of, of, what, of what Christ, you know, of where Christ is now. And so, Right, says, hey, we have this open access to Christ, this open throne room of God now where Christ dwells as high priest in the heavenly sanctuary, which the tabernacle is only a picture. Why go back to Judaism when you can go forward to Christ? Verse 12, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Now the reference to entering the tabernacle with blood, with the blood of goats and calves, looks back to the Old Testament. It looks back to that day called the Day of Atonement, which is given in 
Leviticus 16. On that day, we're told that once a year, the high priest went into the tabernacle, into the Holy of Holies, with the blood of a sacrifice to make atonement. First, he went in with the blood of a bull, and this was for his own sins. We're told first that the priest must atone for his own sins. And then he went in with the blood of a goat, which was for the sins of the people. It was for the nation. Now, each time the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, which was on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And we're told that was for the atonement of the people. Now, we need to understand this word atonement in light of what the Old Testament taught. The word atonement isn't what we understand as total forgiveness through Christ. But the word atonement comes from a Hebrew word, kofar, which means to cover. And that's what that sacrifice did. God commanded that once a year they would make this atonement, and what that would do is it would cover the sins of the people for that year. And then the next year would come, on the Day of Atonement, they would have to come in and cover the sins of the people, and cover the sins of the people. As we'll see in chapter 10, those sacrifices of animals can never fully take away sin. They can only cover it. It's impossible for the blood of the bulls and goats to take away sin. But they only pointed the believer to the fact that, hey, you need a perfect sacrifice. And this is only temporary until that perfect sacrifice comes. Now, he goes on and says, now Christ, think about Christ. In contrast to that atonement that they had to make in the Old Testament, Christ has come. And he's entered the Holy of Holies in heaven, the very throne room of God, not with the sacrifice of an animal, but with his own sacrifice, with his own blood, with his own perfect sacrifice. Not the blood of bulls and goats, but his own perfect sacrifice. Now notice this, though the sacrifice of Christ, um, through the sacrifice of Christ, excuse me, Christ has made it possible for all those who believe in him to have eternal redemption. Eternal redemption, not just cover. And so through Christ, we're not just covered, but we're eternally redeemed. And through that eternal redemption, we're bought off the marketplace of sin. Every person who's born into this world is born dead in trespasses and sins. We're slaves of sin. But yet through the death of Christ, he's paid our price in full. He's redeemed us off that marketplace. He's purchased us and set us free. Now we can serve God with our life. Second, in verses 13 through 14, Christ through his shed blood cleanses the conscience. Verse 13, for if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. So under the law, God made it possible for the believer to be purified outwardly. And this was done for two, two ways and for two reasons. First, as we talked about sin, this was done by the blood of bulls and goats. Their sins were covered outwardly. It was only an outward thing. It can never affect their heart, but it, all, it really affected them outwardly. They were saved by faith, but this covering only covered them in the sense of their, their standing with God. Then there was a need for the cleansing of a believer with the ashes of a red heifer that was mixed with water and sprinkled on a person. This ritual was, this ritual was required for a person who lost their fellowship with the commonwealth of Israel by becoming ceremonially unclean. And so under the law, there was different states that a person could enter into. It, you know, they can become uh, unclean by touching, say, like a dead body or something ceremonially that God commanded not to do in his law, under his ceremonial law. And if a person did this, then they would be separated from the commonwealth of Israel. 
And the way that they entered back into this commonwealth was by entering back into a clean state, and they had to go through an outward ritual to go back in this clean state. And so he talked about this outward cleansing, then he contrasts it with Christ in verse 14. He says, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And so if these sacrifices under the law were effective to outwardly cover and cleanse a person, how much more would the blood of Christ effectively cleanse a person inwardly? And so he talked about the sacrifice of the Lord. We're told that he was offered to God as a spotless lamb. He was spotless to God. Now the sacrifices in the Old Testament, they were all by constraint, right? By constraint. No animal ever offered himself willingly. I mean, if, you know, if they had a choice, they'd probably run away. But, you know, they were all by constraint. They all took them there and they all were sacrificed in that way. But Christ offered himself willingly to God. He willingly laid down his life. He did this through the eternal spirit. The eternal spirit talking about the Holy Spirit. Through the power of the spirit, Christ laid down his life as a sacrifice to God. So there we see the Trinity in the work of redemption. We have Christ, the Son, the Holy Spirit empowering him to lay down his life as a willful sacrifice. And we have the Father whom Christ paid his redemption to. You see, man's sin wasn't against Satan. It was against God. We broke God's law. And since God is a just God, sin must be paid for. It must be redeemed. And Christ paid that redemption price to God by laying down his own life. And so Christ's perfect sacrifice was accepted by God, and we see that by Christ's resurrection from the dead. And so that's the guarantee that Christ's sacrifice was sufficient to a holy God. God raised him again from the dead. And now we have this promise as a believer. As we believe in this gospel, that Christ died for our sins, that he rose again from the dead, we have an amazing work that takes place in our heart. Something different than the Old Testament saints would ever have our conscience can be clean from dead works. Our conscience can be clean from dead works. We all have a conscience. It's a facet of our immaterial nature that was made by God, and God often uses it. He can use us to guide us. He can use it, use it to goad us, to convict us. You see, the Old Testament believer, they never had a clean conscience in the sense of their redemption because these sacrifices will only remind them over and over and over that their still sin remain that their sins still remained and that they had to offer another sacrifice year after year. But the believer in Jesus Christ is different. Through the sacrifice of Jesus and our faith in him, we can know fully and finally that our sins are forgiven and no other works need to be done. You don't have to offer a sacrifice year after year after year after year. Because the Bible says, if you believe in him, you will be saved. And that deals with the conscience. Finally, we can know that our sins are fully and finally taken away. It's an amazing thing. Our sins aren't just covered, they're forgiven. They're moved as far as the east is from the west. Now, third, in verses 15 through 28, we see that through Christ's shed blood, he sealed the eternal promises of the new covenant. Verse 15, and for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of 
the eternal inheritance. Now, Jesus, through his death, through his shed blood, also became this mediator of the new covenant. So in other words, it's through Christ that a person knows and experiences the blessings of this new covenant. We talked about this in the beginning of the study, about the you know, permanent dwelling of the spirit, the forgiveness of sins. It's only through Christ that a person can receive these things. Now, the writer in this verse teaches us a lot about those who lived before Christ and how they received the blessings of the new covenant. He talks about them who received forgiveness who were under the law before Christ. Now, before Christ, Old Testament believers were saved in some sense. That's obvious by the fact that he says that they were called. And so, based on the fact that Old Testament believers were called by God, they were saved in some sense. They weren't saved in a New Testament sense with the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but they had a relationship with God. They were in some sense saved. How were they saved? Well, they were saved by faith and faith alone. There's one condition in the entire Bible how a person is saved, and that's always by faith. Paul, talking to the Romans in chapter 4, says that Abraham was saved by faith before the law, and David was saved by faith under the law. It's always one condition for salvation. Now, while the condition of salvation has always been faith, the content of what a person had to believe for salvation is based upon the revelation of God in each age that you see in the Bible. We know that because it's impossible for an Old Testament saint before the coming of Christ to understand that Christ died on their cross for their sins, rose again the third day, that you know, they needed to turn from their sins and believe on him and be saved. They couldn't have known that. Disciples of Jesus didn't even know that because they were trying to get Jesus not to go to the cross. But they were saved by believing that Jesus was the Messiah and that he was offering the kingdom. Abraham, we're told, was saved by faith in God, the fact that God was gonna give him his promises. So people have always been saved by faith alone, but the content that they believed at times was different. After the cross, we're required to believe in the cross of Jesus Christ and the work that he has done. Now the writer addresses how a holy God can save people by faith alone before the cross. How could he do that? Well, the writer says because when Jesus died on the cross, he paid for not only the present and future sins of people, but he also paid for the past sins of people who lived before under the law. And so when Christ died on the cross, he paid for the sins past, present, and future. And based on this fact, God in his foreknowledge, knowing that Christ would save mankind, past, present, and future, on the cross, he chose to save Old Testament believers by faith on the basis of Christ's future work on the cross. Lewis Ferry Schaefer said it the best. He says, believers in the Old Testament were saved on credit, and the payment came due at Calvary. And so in other words, they were saved on the basis of what Christ would do later, and their sins were fully and finally atoned for on the cross of Jesus Christ. Because their sins weren't fully and finally atoned, they, when they died, they couldn't go straight to heaven. They had to go to paradise, which is Abraham's bosom, right? That place, Luke 16 tells us, divided between a gulf, paradise on you know, the believers and um, non-believers. But when Christ died on the cross, the Bible says in Ephesians 4, he descended into the lower parts of the earth and led those captives from their captivity. He led them to heaven. They can now go to heaven with him because their sins were finally and fully covered or um, atoned for and they were finally forgiven. Now after the cross, of course, we can go straight to heaven to be with Christ because 
His sins are forgiven. And so this is what the writer is talking about. He said, hey, these Old Testament believers, they can experience, they can partake of these blessings of the new covenant because of what Christ did. Now he goes on and talks more about Christ's dead, death in the new covenant, verse 16. For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of a testator. For a testament is enforced after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. So in order to illustrate the importance of Christ's sacrifice as it relates to the new covenant, he describes it as a last will and testament. And so just as a person's will uh, and, you know, and, and their future inheritance is only a promise until the person dies, even so, the things of the new covenant were only promises until Christ died and shed his blood to seal this new covenant. It became a guarantee. And so say, you know, you're written in a will and you're promised all these things. Those promises are good. You know, they can maybe even be changed until that person dies. <laughs> and once that person dies, the will can't be changed, right? It's set. In the same way, we're given, you know, these Old Testament believers were given all these promises of the new covenant, but they came into force. They came into a reality when Christ shed his blood, as he said on the last night, my blood of the new covenant shed for many. Verse 18, therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. And so just as a will is instituted with death, even so a covenant is, is instituted with the death of a sacrifice. And this wouldn't be too far-fetched for a Jewish believer to understand. It's biblical because covenants were always instituted usually through death, through a sacrifice. They were signed and sealed with the blood of a sacrifice, and that's often they would re be referred to as cutting covenant. We see this with God's unconditional covenant with Abraham. God there had the sacrifice, the, you know, the covenant, the animal was divided in two, and God passed through the animal. He cut covenant with Abraham. There was a sacrifice. And then we go on to this conditional covenant under the law. And the writer says, yeah, think about that. Blood was also shed to initiate this covenant as well. God had a sacrifice that, that was slain, and then the blood was sprinkled on the people, Israel, and it was sprinkled on the law. The blood was binding these two parties to this covenant. Israel had a responsibility, which is why it was conditional, to do their part, and God was gonna do his part and be faithful to his promises under the law. Verse 21, then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry, and according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. You can't be a liberal and teach this passage, right? It talks too much about blood. And so that's why we teach the Bible chapter by chapter and verse by verse. Um, so not only was the covenant seal with blood, but the tabernacle and the vessels of ministry were also sprinkled with blood and purified. Now, it's interesting. We're not told anything about this in the Old Testament. We're, we're, we're not told that, that the priests sprinkled these different items in the tabernacle. But the writer, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has given us insight into God's previous revelation. So that's pretty cool how the New Testament does it. It's like a commentary on the Old Testament. And so God commanded that these things would be sanctified. 
And so he's establishing a point here that always under God's system, a person was cleansed, something was consecrated, and something was purified always through the shedding of blood. Something was always sealed through the shedding of blood. Now in contrast to that, he says, think about Jesus. Verse 23, therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another, then he would have, have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And so he says, he's talking to this Jewish audience, they knew a lot about sacrifice, knew a lot about stuff. He says, but you know what, guys? Think about what Jesus did. Think about where Jesus is. By his own sacrifice, he has entered the very presence of God in the heavenly tabernacle. Not this tabernacle made with hands, which is only a copy, but the true heavenly tabernacle. And the sacrifice that he offered wasn't repeated. It didn't have to be done year after year after year after year, but it was sufficient. It was done once and for all to take away sin. Through faith in Christ, our sins can be fully and finally forgiven. It's a sufficient sacrifice. It's a better sacrifice. Now, to go off on a rabbit trail here, a little apologetic rabbit trail, there's a teaching, some of you probably know it, in the Catholic Church known as the Eucharist. And the Catholic Church teaches that through what's called transubstantiation, that the actual elements of communion become the literal body and blood of Jesus after they're changed, which is why it's called transubstantiation. The cracker actually becomes the literal flesh of Jesus. The cup actually becomes the literal blood of Jesus. The Catholics also believe that this act is essential to infuse grace in a person's life that maybe, hopefully, they can be saved. The main problem with this is not just the fact that they, you know, think it actually becomes the literal body and blood of Jesus, but they believe that through every mass, Christ is sacrificed through the breaking of the bread and through the drinking of the cup. This contradicts the scripture. Because Christ doesn't have to suffer repeatedly. He appeared once at the end of ages to put away sin fully and finally. A person doesn't have to continually do works, work after work after work after work, that hopefully maybe they might be saved if they're good enough in the end. But a person is justified and declared righteous by faith alone in Jesus. A person can't have a clean conscience by being involved in a religion, but only by God's grace can a person's conscience be fully and finally cleansed. Ask the reformers, guys like Luther and those guys, when they came across the grace of God and they realized you're saved by grace through faith alone. It's, a, it's effective on a person's life. It's not just doctrinal, it's personal. Verse 27, and is it appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. The death of Christ on the cross is the only basis for salvation for a fallen sinner. The choice a person, um, the choice a person must make must be determined now when they live. Once they die, it'll be too late. It's appointed for men to once to die and after this judgment. And so the life now is where we determine where we're gonna spend eternity. And if we choose to give our life to the Lord, then we'll spend eternity 
with him. Verse 28, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. And so through our faith in Christ, our sins have been once and for all forgiven. And it's not by our works, but by his grace alone. And that gives us confidence and expectancy that Christ will come back for us again one day. Christ will come back perfected and glorified, and he'll change us, the Bible says, in his own image. John says that we have that promise, that when he appears, we'll be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We have that hope. Christ is going to come back and resurrect the dead in Christ and rapture living believers, and we'll spend eternity with him. In closing, learning about Christ's sacrifice should not just teach us, it should affect us. And this is what Peter echoed to the audience that he was writing to when he wrote his passage. You see, the Hebrews were writing to persecuted believers who were in the, in the thick of it. James was writing to persecuted believers who were in the thick of it. And Peter wrote to persecuted believers who were in the thick of it. And all of them focus on one thing, Jesus Christ and pressing forward in maturity in a relationship with him. Let me close with one last passage from 1 Peter 1, 13 through 21. I wanna, I wanna read it to you from the New Living Translation. It kinda helps you bring it out helps it bring out a little bit. He says, so think clearly and exercise self-control. Look forward to the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You don't know any better than, or you didn't know any better then, but now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. And remember that the heavenly father to whom you pray has no favorites. He will judge or reward you according to what you do. So you must live in reverent fear of him during your time as foreigners in the land. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And the ransom he paid was not mere gold or silver. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. God chose him as your ransom long before the world began, but he has now revealed him to you in these last days. And so Peter says, hey guys, understanding this precious blood of Christ, this spotless sacrifice, is supposed to change our way of thinking. It's to help us think clearly and exercise self-control. And what an important thing that is for people who are in the thick of it, right? We can get tunnel vision and only think about ourselves or, or, or what's going on. But Peter says, hey, take your eyes off yourself and put them on Jesus. He'll help you think clearly. Just as a person whose life is saved by a blood donor has a different outlook on life, right? Even so, you and I, as we understand what Jesus has done for us, the fact that he saved us by his blood, it'll affect the way we look at life here on earth. It'll affect us to share our testimony because we have one who can save. It'll affect the way that we enjoy life now as we are missionaries for him. So let's think about the Lord and, and reminisce on his goodness.